You can turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. Continue our study of the Gospel of John. And this week, today, we pick up at verse 15, and Lord willing, we'll cover down through verse 18, looking at the first of Simon Peter's denial of the Lord that we've considered recently, his first denial. Um, Last week, we were looking together at Jesus being bound, arrested and bound, and taken by these soldiers to the high priest, and we'll pick up the narrative here once again today from that thought. Before we begin, I'll ask you if you're able to stand with me to read verses 15 through 18, and then we'll pray and begin. John chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Thank you. You may be seated. If you're being seated, bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, oh God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the record of history that details for us the lives of your people and how you've worked in them. Oh Lord, this is such a true and faithful record without error. And it is an honest book that even tells us of the failures and weaknesses of men, even great men and their failings and your grace in restoring them. God, I pray that you would move Now, that you would guard me from error. Lord, do not let me go further than you would have me to go. But, oh God, I pray that I wouldn't stop early, that I would go as far as you would have me to. Lord, empower what is spoken. I pray for boldness and authority that your spirit would accompany every syllable. That none of this hour would be left up to me and what I might like to say. Father, I pray that your son, Jesus Christ, would be evident before us, that by your spirit, you would speak to us, that we would hear more than the words of a man, but the words of our God. Oh, Father, I pray that you would get much glory for yourself here amongst your people now. In Jesus name. Amen. The title of. This particular message is the road to denial, the road to denial. And I suspect that if you pay much attention at all to the world around us today, to the state of, quote unquote, Christendom or Christianity as it is in the world, 
you'll have noticed a great number of people in recent years, and really this is not anything new, but perhaps becoming more and more regular in our society, is people that say that they're Christians abandoning the faith, apostatizing, falling away from the gospel, as though they somehow have lost faith in Christ. And at the same time, we see a host of people and I believe we'll see demonstrated for us in Peter today a host of genuine Christians who much of their lives is marked by denying the Lord, the denial of truth. And so today I'd like to look with you together at the patterns that surround this event in the life of Peter and of John and the Lord Jesus and what impact these things have on us. How is it that you're going to be guarded from facing a day when you Two might deny the Lord. How is it that you're going to be shielded from facing a situation whenever difficulty, suffering may be at stake here? What's going to keep you from saying, I am not one of His? Well, that's what we'll hope to consider together. So we start here together in verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. The first expression we see is Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Now one relevant thing that we see in this verse is that it's informing us of events which took place immediately after Jesus was arrested. Now that's going to be very important as we look forward at this scene here with Peter and his denial and how the roots of Peter's denial began even back in Gethsemane. Peter's denial did not start here at the moment that it takes place. And in the context, this is in the context of this band of soldiers we saw arresting Jesus, marching him to the high priest. And evidently, according to John 18, um, Peter and another disciple followed these soldiers who had arrested Jesus from Gethsemane to the high priest's house. And I argue and believe that this unnamed disciple is most likely John. John does that often in his gospel account. He doesn't name himself. He says, the disciple whom the Lord loved. And in this case, he says that there was another disciple there with him. This is most likely John. John is the eyewitness giving us this record. It's most likely John, just not mentioning his own name. The last thing that we'll look at in this first expression, Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did John, another disciple, is this. That as we consider what it means to deny Christ, it is certainly true that unbelievers who don't profess to know Christ deny Him. The lost world denies Christ with every breath they take, not trusting and loving Him. But our focus is primarily looking at denying Christ as one who professes to be one of His disciples. And we see that in our text because of this expression, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. And so consider this with me. It's a surely a terrible and horrible thing when an unbeliever who's lost and says, I don't know God and I don't know Christ, I don't believe. If the atheist says, I don't believe in Jesus, their denial is a disgusting and putrid thing to hear. But how much worse is it when someone who says, I love Him, when that one denies Him? 
The afflictions or the offenses of a friend sting worse than that of an enemy. And we're looking here today at those who profess to follow Jesus, to be His disciple, denying Him. And so the question, the burning question, and the application which we ought to look at from this point forward through the rest of the message is this. Are you one of Christ's disciples? This is the question, and there's no greater question. There's no more important question. Are you following Christ? Is your life lived unto the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are you one who is denying Him? And before you dismiss that question, even if you've been a member of this body for many years, before you dismiss this question, are you a disciple? This is nothing to scoff at, and it's no small matter. Do you have any idea how many people there are in the religious world today that profess faith in Christ? They say, I'm a disciple of Jesus, and yet the lives they live deny Him at every turn. They, they profess Him with their lips, but their hearts are far from Him, and so are their behaviors. There are those who deny Christ all over the place. As Jesus referenced that from, He quoted that from Isaiah, that these people honors Me with their lips, but their heart is far from Me. And take this into account. Matthew 10.33 But whoever denies Me before men, I also will deny before My Father who is in heaven. Think about this for a minute. Peter denies the Lord in our text, and yet Peter was saved. He was, he was reconciled, he was redeemed, he was restored. And just because Peter was restored is no guarantee that those who say, I believe in Christ, and then deny Him, certainly will be restored. God was merciful to Peter. I'm telling you, let these things sit upon you. Take them seriously. And I say to us all, woe to them who deny Christ before men. If you deny Christ before men, He will deny you before His Father in heaven. That's what He says. There's only access to the Father. There's only heaven and forgiveness of sin and eternal life for those whom Christ claims as His own before the Father. If you deny Jesus, you will not be granted acceptance into the kingdom of God. So as we look here, as one, everyone I take it in this room professes to have faith in Christ. They say, I believe in Him. Well, as you ponder your own profession in light of what we see unfolding before us, be stirred to test yourself. The next part of verse 15 says this, Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. So the next thing we see is an indication. We begin to see a distinction between Peter and John in this scene. And there are at least two different possibilities as to why it is that John is said to be known by the high priest here. At least two. And we'll consider and maybe both of them combined in some way or another. The first possibility is this. John tells us that this other disciple that we're looking at here, this other disciple, it says that he was known of the high priest. That since he was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus. The first possibility is that the high priest here already knew that John was a disciple of Jesus. That's the first possibility. And in the context, therefore, if John were to try to pretend that he was not a disciple of Jesus, they already would have known that. And so it's not like it would have helped him at all. That's one possibility. 
And if that is the case, then John could be demonstrating here a measure of humility. Almost as if to say this in the context. He might as well have been saying, I may well have denied the Lord with Peter if the high priest didn't already know who I was. Do you see what I'm saying here? The high priest already knew who John was, so John went in with Jesus. Whereas Peter wasn't so sure. He remains on the outside of the door. That's one, one explanation. And that very well may be the, the case. But in light of the fact that Peter was allowed to come in later simply because of, his, of what John says, John's request, it seems that John was most likely acquainted with the high priest just enough to be allowed in, entrance. Now here's the main point. Whichever one of those things is true, the primary distinction between Peter and John here is that John is seen to be openly before men concerning his desire to be near the Lord. John goes in with the Lord and he's open about it and it's known to those who are watching. As a matter of fact, we're going on to see in our text later where this girl, this servant girl says, are you a disciple as well? As well as who? Well, as well as John. John's the one who says, let Peter come in here. So the assumption is John is there fully committed to being next to and near the Lord, identifying clearly as his disciple. So that's the difference we see that John is seen to be with and near Christ while Peter is off in the shadows. Now, here's the question that ought to come immediately to you. Are you prepared to be open in your profession of faith concerning the Lord? Are you prepared to speak plainly and clearly about your relationship to Christ? Or are you strategically biding your time until it becomes a little safer? That's what Peter seems to be doing here. Oh yeah, he's there. He's interested. But he's not going to go in immediately. He's going to stay off a little bit until he knows for sure that it's safe to go in. You know, that's the way a lot of Christians think and live in society today. They say, I love Jesus. I'm committed to the truths of the Bible. But they're not going to come and be outspoken and open about what they believe until they see other Christians doing it. And think about this. If all of us sit on our heels and keep our mouths closed concerning the truths of Scripture until somebody else stands up and says, thus says the Lord, this is true, this is life. If we all do that, then none of us ever will. And so John here leading in this charge, standing inside with the Lord and Peter still outside. My question to you is, are you content to name Christ as Lord whenever the thing that you're identifying in agreement with concerning Jesus is something that's already pretty much generally accepted about Him, and yet silent when it comes to the truths with challenge and offend the lost? One thing I believe that is very intentionally depicted in this narrative is John's persistent commitment to be near to the Lord, as near as he possibly could. And take this out of our context here. We're reading here of John, that this that John, since he was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. Think on it this way. If this is truly a demonstration of bold commitment to Christ and to follow and be near Him, even when it's costly, if that's what's going on here with John, then consider it this way. Those who are prepared to stand bold for Christ against opposition, against hatred, and against all suffering, those who will stand with Christ are not those who are walking around looking for a fight. 
You get the idea. As a matter of fact, doesn't that seem to be the reversal of roles? Peter was the one looking for the fight. John, not so much. Those who will stand against affliction are not those looking for a fight. They're those who are simply committed to being near to the Lord. Seeking the Lord. If you're seeking Him, there are going to be, there's going to be opposition that comes. But you're going to be firm if He's the one that you're seeking. Simply seeking to be near to the Lord. Now as if to immediately contrast that in John being near to the Lord, verse 16 tells us this. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. I'm constantly amazed by how the Lord gives us visual aids as He speaks to us in the Scriptures. Consider how compelling this is. John is on the inside nearer to the Lord, but Peter stood outside at the door. Now you remember something. This is a real life account of the history of what actually happened in Peter's life. This isn't just some, some fantastic story, some fable. This is real life. This actually happened to Peter. Now, I'm considering, I'm pressing, I'm looking at this through the lens of Peter who would deny the Lord. And I'm suggesting that Peter being on the outside is an indication of a problem. But even if... Even if Peter really truly wanted to be in there with John, consider this. That Peter perhaps, maybe the only reason he's still outside is because he hadn't been granted the access that John had. And perhaps he desired to be in there as much as John. And yet, his circumstances are not unfolding by happenstance. Consider this for a moment with me. Here he is. Peter stood outside at the door. The language of the Scripture is always significant. Jesus said in Luke 22, 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. So here's Peter on the outside at the door, not able to come in and be near the Lord as John is. And could it be that that circumstance of separation was an attack and a ploy of Satan himself in sifting Peter, drawing that distinction, that separation. It may appear on the surface to just be an unavoidable fact in Peter's life, or it could be Satan sifting him. Now, there's an application for us in this. Do you ever feel as though you're outside at the door, separated, kind of like we see with Peter here? Do you ever feel like Oh, I don't know. The circumstances in your life have separated you from a nearness to God. People who suffer financial loss or loss of a loved one or some great difficulty, some issue with their health. They feel like the Lord, there's a distance going on there. They feel far from God. Or it could be something very physical. Your car breaks down on the way to church or you miss a service. If you suspect that there's no attack and spiritual warfare of the enemy of your soul against you through those things, think again. There is certainly a war going on. Matter of fact, just several times and even recently, I was meeting with, with Brother Jim and Jim Reynolds, the observations made, what is it about Sunday mornings, brother? The devil's at work against God's people trying to prevent them from gathering. If something can go wrong, it will oftentimes on Sunday. Why is that? 
There is a focused attempt to keep you from being near to God and near to the people of God. And in this circumstance, Peter is standing outside at the door, not entering in with John. So I ask, are you feeling as though you're kept at the door? You're not included. You're not brought in. These things could very well be a war against your soul and leading you to deny him. You know, something that's interesting that if I see a person who is regularly detached from the life of the body, I can almost guarantee you that there is hardship in their future, that they're going to face severe temptation to deny the Lord in one way or another, that if you're separated from God, from his people, disaster is on the horizon. This isn't some legalistic thing where I'm telling you, if you don't come in here, you're not a very good Christian. What I'm telling you is for the sake of your own soul and the opportunity to bless and encourage other people, even as we're going to see John doing here in a moment, that it is good for you that you battle through being a part and involved with these types of things. But then again, perhaps Peter stood outside at the door. Perhaps your feeling of being outside at the door and not entering fully in is not necessarily a physical division, but a spiritual one. Do you ever feel awkward or disconnected whenever it comes to conversations with other Christians? Feel like maybe you can't enter in or you have a hard time connecting a little bit. You feel strange or misplaced, disconnected. Maybe you feel like you don't measure up or fit in with other Christian people. Do you wish that you had the same sense of nearness to God that you see in other people? You feel like I'm at the door. I'm just standing at the door. I can't come in. I don't experience what they experience. Well, what is John's response to Peter's situation here? And what does it teach us? Peter stood outside at the door, so the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Think of it this way. Peter and John, they've been following Christ together for over three years now. Faithfully committed to serving Christ. They've seen some crazy stuff along the way. Surely had a bond of fellowship that was very, very intimate. And John and Peter, along with John's brother James, had actually been brought into the Lord's inner circle. These three allowed to see some things that the other disciples didn't see. For example, they stood together at the Mount of Transfiguration and saw Christ transfigured in all His glory. And even this very night... They've traveled together. Evidently, only these two went together in order to be near to the Lord as he was taken from Gethsemane. I say that John and Peter had a very close and intimate relationship, a friendship. And what I believe we're seeing, at least depicted in part in John, is that he was troubled by Peter being outside. You see that in the text? John's in the courtyard. He sees Peter outside at the door. And you can almost imagine him seeing him separated in that way and desperately yearning for Peter to be inside with him. Peter, brother, I want you in here with me. And so he makes arrangements for Peter to be allowed in as well. My question is, shouldn't that be the heart of every Christian for other believers? You ever see unbelievers that you know they're disheveled? You know they're having difficulty? You know things aren't going well for them? Or maybe they look aloof and detached and sorrowful in their soul? You see a Christian person, maybe even in this church, that their attendance starts to drop off. They're not as committed or involved as they once were. Should not our hearts say, what's going on in that person's life? I love them. I want to see them coming in, getting close. 
near to the Lord and near to his people. (coughs) Should we not be moved to make every effort to see them brought back into close fellowship with the body and nearness to God? Well, not only should that be true, I would argue there's something terribly wrong with us if we're content to watch other believers straining for a glimpse of Christ at the door, straining and longing for a closer entrance with Him whenever we might be the very ones God uses to bring them in closer. And then yet, and this is a big point, as we're burdened for other believers and we see them struggling, we seek to help them, even as we do so, as we see in this case, the sifting of Satan against God's people may produce in them a different response to our efforts than we hope to see. I'm sure that John was hoping as soon as Peter got in the door, got in there in this courtyard, that all of a sudden it would have a wonderful, blessed impact on Peter. And on himself, fellowship reignited and restored. Here he's in here with us now. And then we see what actually happened with Peter. Denial and betrayal. Is that not often the case? You see somebody struggling, you reach out to them, you try to love them, you try to share truth with them, to counsel them and encourage them. And you do so, and they don't respond how you wish that they would have. They don't react in the way that's actually good for them. And yet it doesn't make what John does here with Peter any less significant or important. It was a part of the process. And we see what the reaction to this is. John says, hey, go and bring Peter in. Verse 17, it says, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. That's really a very simple question, isn't it? And think of this. This servant girl, she's virtually no threat at all to Peter. This is almost mind-blowing that this this presumably young servant girl asked Peter, well, you're not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he says, I am not. You see, this is not a complex or hard question that Peter gets asked here. It's not even something that's necessarily going to cost him if he says, yes, why, yes, I am. John's already in there. And evidently, John's able to tell her to let Peter in. What's going on here with Peter that would cause him to be so shaken by this question? Well, I believe it's because this very question is driving at the heart of the trial that Peter was going through. And it may seem insignificant in nature in the context of Peter's denial, and yet there are far-reaching implications. What do I mean? All she asks, as one that's no threat at all, she says, are you one of his disciples? Or you're not, are you? You know, we often imagine when we think about persecution, suffering, we imagine that the kind of devilish opposition that we're likely to face is going to be some dramatic scene and when some mighty authority presses us and says, deny Christ or we're going to kill you. And anything less than that, we deem as not necessarily really opposition, not really not really denying the Lord if it doesn't come down to that. They don't make you say it. And yet for Peter... It began with a very simple question from servant girl. I know I've thought up scenarios like this. I know every man that I've ever met that's a husband and father and many who aren't walk into a store and they start scoping the place trying to imagine what terrible thing might happen and how would they respond. 
How would they take out the bad guy? Where are the exits? And we're looking around. Well, some of us maybe think that way when it comes to persecution. And you might have imagined at one time or another, how would I have the, the courage to proclaim Christ if there were some Islamic terrorist that was about to blow my head off? Would I say Jesus is Lord in that setting? And we imagine those extreme contexts. And yet, are we proclaiming Him or denying Him in our everyday encounters with ordinary people? You see, it's put very plainly to us in our text in the form of a direct question. She says very plainly, very directly, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Very simple, very straightforward, very to the point. And yet, the reality is that every interaction that you have with another person carries that question with it. You understand what I'm telling you? She specifically says, you're not one of his disciples, are you? Every time you interact with another person, whether your spouse, your children, people in this community, people in this church, every interaction, there is this question lingering in the air. Are you his disciple or not? Are you living or are you denying him or living for him? And whether you answer with your mouth or not, your actions certainly will answer for you. Are you his disciple? At this point, I want to pay special attention to this word that you use, disciple. This is one of those words that's commonly misunderstood and even more commonly misapplied today. For most people who hear the word disciple, you know what they think that means, the disciple of Jesus? Most people think the word disciple is just simply an endearing word that I might use to profess that I know Jesus. A disciple, that's someone who, yeah, they're, they're connected to Jesus, but they don't really actually stop to think about the substance of the actual word. So what is a disciple? Because she's asking something very specific whenever she says this to, Pe- to Peter. Are you a disciple of this man? <clears throat> well, a disciple, I won't get into the Greek with you, but a disciple is not just simply someone who fancies themselves to have a subjective attachment to Jesus. A disciple is most literally a learner. That's essentially what the word means, but it's much more than that. It's a learner who seeks to imitate their master and to employ his teaching to every facet of their life. A disciple is someone who follows and seeks to live everything out that they do in light of their master and what he's taught. Put it to you this way. If I told you that I were a disciple of Adolf Hitler, you might expect that I would have a hatred for Jews and some desire for world domination. And if I didn't have those qualities about me, you would think, well, you're not really one of his disciples. If you were, your life would be in accordance with what his priorities were and what he wanted to do, right? Or similarly, if I were to say I was a disciple of John Wayne, You might expect to see in me a commitment to rough and tough kind of living and persistence and zeal and all those things portrayed in the films that he starred in. I'm a disciple of this person. Well, should not your life have a strong reflection of the one who is discipling you? To be a disciple of Christ means to be totally committed to living according to his every word and to recognize him as the chief authority. It is to align yourself with Him regardless of the negative responses that His words will bring from others. To be a disciple, it is to likely subject yourself to the same hatred, mistreatment, and opposition that He faced. So I ask us again, 
Is that true of you? Are you one who follows what Jesus says, does what he says, honors him, professes faith in him, faces difficulty for him? Are you committed to him? Is he the one who's directing the course you're on or not? Are you a disciple of Christ? Well, how did Peter answer here? Servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. I can't imagine any more horrifying words coming out of a man's mouth than that. It's been said well before that the Christian gospel is extraordinarily simple. It doesn't mean that it's not profoundly deep, eternally and infinitely exhaustive. It's incredible. We'll never fully understand it, though we for all eternity seek after it. But it is extremely simple. You see, there are only one of two options and there's nothing in between. Either you are His disciple or you are not. It's very straightforward. It's very simple. And I've told you, a disciple, one who is entirely committed to Him in everything. So either you are or you're not. And eternity depends upon your answer to that question. Are you His disciple? And it's easy for us to become so distracted, whether with philosophical questions or political arguments or theological debates, that we miss the simplicity of what is most essential. Are you his disciple? And you know something that's perhaps hard to fathom, and it seems inconsistent, is that Peter says, I am not, in light of the fact that he was prepared a short time prior to this, to go to battle against 500 to 1,000 men. Open combat. And he cut off the servant Malchus's ear. Does that sound like the same guy? The guy who says, we're going to fight. Turns around and says, I'm not his disciple. What's going on here? Is there a relationship between those two? Is Peter just all of a sudden ran out of juice? He's ran out of strength, ran out of conviction? Is there something else going on here? Why is he? What's changed? Let me suggest to you this. that It is often the case that people appear to be bold for God so long as they think that God's plan for them is the same plan that they have for themselves. You understand my meaning here? Peter had one set of ideas. Peter could be as bold as he wanted to be so long as he thought Jesus is here to take over this kingdom, to take over this physical realm, to run out these Romans, to to set us up in Jerusalem and do all of these things. Peter would be bold in that setting. Cut off a man's ear, go to fight in that setting. But as soon as he begins to realize that Jesus has plans that don't match his own, he appears weak and deflated As soon as he begins to come to grips with the fact that what he expected the Lord to come and do is not what the Lord's doing. If the Lord's not operating on my expectations and what I think he ought to be doing, well, then all of a sudden I may not be nearly as committed to the cause if he's not doing what I want him to do. And here's my question. Can you ever recall personally, individually being excited to get out there and serve the Lord only to have your hopes and dreams dashed? Ever been Tempted to bow out and become less involved in serving Him when your goals aren't met? 
That's a challenging thing for all of us to go through and to ask ourselves the question, what is the end of that which I'm pursuing in service to God? Is it what he has, what he wants, what his purposes are, or is it my own? And if the results that are born in my life don't match what I wish would happen, am I at that time going to say, well, okay, hold on there, Lord. I thought we were doing something different. I thought we were going a different way. I'm not sure if I'm all in if it's not going to go the way I want it to go. Surely we can all think of testimonies of times where we've endured something like that. She asks him, if he's a disciple, he says, I am not. And notice the stark contrast between Peter and the Lord Jesus here. Couldn't help but noticing this. You know, they came looking for Jesus to arrest him and he knew what they were doing. And he says, whom are you seeking? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am He. Well, they're thrown to the ground again. They come. He says, who are you seeking? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I already told you I am He. And they didn't fall down that time. But here's the point. When they come looking for Christ, He triumphantly and apologetically declares, I am He. He says, I'm the one you're looking for. And He's fully aware of what was awaiting Him, of the suffering He would endure. He's bold. He's unwavering. Peter is confronted by a similar question, an accusing question, and makes haste to avoid the suffering that he would have endured for the kingdom of God. Verse 18. Press forward with me now. It says, Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also with them, standing and warming himself. Last verse of our consideration today. Well, we'll look at a few from Timothy here in a moment. But in this text in John, the pattern that we can observe in Peter's life, which is leading up to this denial and following this denial of the Lord and how Satan is sifting him can be described in this way. Think back to the garden. Peter, and not just Peter, the others as well, they became drowsy. And even from Mark and from the, uh, from the call to worship, we saw Jesus says that all of you are going to fall away. You're all going to ultimately in one way or another deny or doubt me. So it wasn't just Peter, but Peter's the one we get to focus on here. Peter became drowsy and he began to sleep in the midst of Christ's prayers in the garden of Gethsemane. He couldn't stay awake. He couldn't watch and pray. More consumed by the issues in his flesh. Think about how that leads to denial. Often it is that whenever the saints are weary, when you're tired, whenever you're exhausted from all your labors, raising your family, loving your children and your spouse, working in your job, when you're exhausted and you've got nothing left, that's whenever you ought to be the most careful, the most diligent to observe those attacks which may come against you and the temptations to cater to your weakened flesh. He was tired. He was exhausted. And he'd exhausted himself already in something of an apparent physical struggle against Roman soldiers with misplaced zeal and a lack of understanding. This is the next step on the road to denial. First, he's tired. And then his understanding isn't grounded. How many people, they come to deny the Lord or come to face temptation and they go off in terrible sin because they don't understand the truth of God's Word and the purpose of Christ's coming. They think they know one thing, but it's not actually what they think it is. It leads them into all sorts of error. So here he is. The next step down the road is striving after something that's not according to Christ's purpose. And then you see 
He's separated from Christ as well as John and kept outside. The next path, the next pattern in this road to denial is a division from God's people and from God Himself. A discouragement that comes from being separated from those you love the most. Missing services, being detached from regular study and regular prayer, things that will lead to denial. And the last thing we see is that he gave in to carnal fear and a temporal focus when he was questioned by the servant girl. And here he is at the end of our text, falling right in with the very ones who had arrested his Savior. You see this? How could it be that the one moment Peter's cutting off a man's ear, the next minute he's warming his hands around the fire with these same guys? Falling in, living in a like way as those who hate the Lord. I'm telling you, to deny the Lord is horrible. It's soul-wrenching and it's confidence-killing in the heart of any Christian. And it doesn't just happen. You don't just wake up one day denying the Lord. It's a pattern. It's a pattern that's developed over time, over lack of discipline, over a lack of study of the Scriptures and prayer and in relationship with other believers in the local context, these things fuel the fire that leads to denying the Lord. And it comes as a direct assault from the enemy. It's fueled by a lack of understanding. And it leads to greater and greater denials. See, Peter's first denial is pretty much a quiet thing in some back room outside the courtyard as he's on his way in by a girl who can't do anything to him. But then the stakes get raised higher and higher and his lies and his denying just grows and grows and grows. And here's the point. When you've denied him once, whether with your lips or with your life, it becomes easier and easier and easier until you find yourself left in a state of hopeless despair. Now, this last point from John 18, perhaps I'm reading too much into this expression than I ought to, but I don't think so. And the description that's given to us is as accurate as any you're likely to find. Think about this. Here it says, Peter also was with them standing and warming himself to live according to the pattern of this world and denial of Christ, both with your mouth and how you live, separated from God and His people, next to the world, alongside the world. To do that, it's a dark and cold place to be, isn't it? You know, I thought about this expression, Peter there warming his hands. There's no amount of fire that could ever charcoal, that could ever warm the soul of a believer who's denied the Lord. And it's funny how this works. Whenever you're either really nervous, really anxious, really scared, really hurting, spiritually and emotionally, how often that impacts your physical frame. I can almost imagine the chills, the, 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 the cold that was seeping into Peter's bones in this scene must certainly have been related to what he just done, his treason against the Lord. But that fire could not heat what would grow cold in him. So, what is it that we ought to conclude from this telling of Peter's denial? And I'll tell you, every one of us, I don't care how long you've been a Christian, every single one of us is guilty of denying the Lord in one way or another. We have denied Him. We have had opportunities to stand firm for Him, whether it's in the smallest context you might consider, and maybe this is the greatest context with one of your children, to be faithful unto God and do what's right before Him, and you haven't done it. 
Every one of us has failed. And now here's my question. Are we going to chalk it up to our own weakness and frailty and ignore the devastating impact that denying Him in this way has upon ourselves and others? Is that how we're going to deal with this? What are you supposed to do when you face the reality of your own denials of the Lord? As one who says, I believe, you say, I have faith in Christ. If you deny the Lord, if you do something that's inconsistent with what He said and what it means to be a disciple, should you be overcome by some fear and trembling and terror that the wrath of God is going to fall on you and Jesus is going to deny you before the Father? Is that the attitude you should have? I've read Scriptures, and we've got one more to look at that may lead you to think that if you don't read them in their fullness. What about a lost person? If you're here today and you know for a fact that you're not saved and you're outside of Christ, if that's you here in this room right now, is there any hope that Jesus Christ would take up your case before the Father? He's already said that if you deny Him before men, He'll deny you before the Father. Do you profess Jesus as Lord? Are you His disciple here today? If you say no, how is it that Jesus can offer atonement for your sins and reconcile you to God? If you die in a position of denying the Lord, whether with your mouth or even the ways that you live, and you never come to be reconciled to Jesus Christ by faith, what that means for you is that you will have no advocate with the Father. You will face His just wrath against you. Turn with me just for a moment to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and a lot of these things. We're not going to consider the culmination of Peter's denial and restoration, though we will in coming months. But for you, we've seen Peter denied the Lord and we've seen if you deny him before men, he'll deny you before the Father. My question is for you. What hope is there for your soul? We'll come back to Peter later. We're talking about you and me. How are we to stand in light of these things? Second Timothy chapter two, beginning in verse 10. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That's good news. He cannot and will not deny himself. What is this telling us? It is certainly true. If you deny the Lord and you remain in that state of denial on your dying day, you will wake up under the wrath of Almighty God. And Jesus is telling us through his servant, Paul, writing to Timothy there that he will not deny himself. What does that mean? This is, I'll tell you what that means. Jesus Christ has offered himself up once and for all as a sacrifice for every sin that any one of his people. The notion, the reference there to the elect, Paul says, I do all things for the sake of the elect. Those people, Christ died for them. And he is not going to deny himself a single one of those for whom he died and shed his blood. 
He says, even if we're faithless, if my faithlessness leads me to live in a way that's inconsistent with the disciple, if I deny him with my actions or my words, he's saying he's not going to lose you. Your faith once again comes back to rest, not in whether or not you've ever denied him. But will he deny himself? The one who's the Christian says, this Jesus is my only hope. His faithfulness. He says effectively this. He will have the reward for his suffering. He will not deny himself. He cannot. And the thought I leave you with, whether you're a Christian or not, is this. If you have denied Christ, if you have, and so have I, but if we have, the charge is cast yourself on the mercy of God in Christ and deny Him no longer. Be committed and resolved in your soul. I will not deny Him. What does He have for me to do? How shall I live? What has He said? The hope that we have is that we who confess Him with our mouths and believe in our hearts that He is Lord and that God has raised Him from the dead on our account, we will surely be saved on the basis of His finished work. The last thing I leave you with is as you're faced with your own failures, be reminded again and again and again that Jesus did not fail. And it's a fine line there. The Scripture warns you that if you deny Him, you will not be advocated for before the Father. And yet there is hope for everyone who's lying helplessly and hopelessly in a state of denial right now. And you feel as though you're kind of separated in the way Peter was. That Jesus, strong and kind, Jesus, that He will restore you to Himself. So with that, I'll ask you to bow with me and we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You that You've promised us that You will lose none of those for whom Christ died. Father, I pray that You would give us the grace to stand boldly for You, to look to You, to seek to be near to You, to be encouraging and help and be a blessing to others who seem to have even for a season drifted from You. We might love them and woo them back in. Lord, I ask that You would guard us as Your people. Protect us from denying You. Help us to be faithful witnesses by Your Spirit for Your glory. Oh God, I thank You for every good and perfect thing You've given to us. In Jesus' name, Amen.